0: Everybody And welcome back to another patron episode of your very favorite podcast. Well, 80s all over the second favorite podcast, third favorite podcast. Let's start <laughs> over. <clears throat> thank you so much to everyone listening to this episode, because that means you have donated some funds to our podcast and we love you for that. And we love you for listening. And speaking of love, let me introduce my co-host, Mr. Drew McQueenie.
1: Uh, Thank you, sir. Thank you. And indeed, we do love our patrons. I got to say, one of my favorite things about the bonus episodes is that when we're done with everything, we're going to have the finished experiment of all of the movies of the 80s reviewed, but then we're also going to have this weird side collection of stuff that I think is just as interesting a body of um, conversation so far, and today's guest is going to add to that in a way that I'm very excited about. I'm very glad you invited him. Uh, I've known this gentleman for a long time, and I think we're going to have a great show today.
0: But let us now introduce our guest. He is a filmmaker. I know him mainly as his wor- for his work as a DVD producer, but he's also a very good director. Welcome, Charles DiLozarica. Well pronounced. Thank Woo! you. Uh, I hate getting people's names wrong, Charles. I-, I just have to say, for a long time, I was writing for DVD Talk and a few other DVD sites. And you don't really pick up that many DVD producers' names. But yours and David Pryor were two names that always stuck in my head. Of if that, that name is anywhere in a DVD review, that's a good DVD because it's loaded with special features and extras. What are your uh, some of your biggest DVDs that you produced, or your favorite? Uh, wow, that, those are kind of two different questions. But I, I, I think,
2: you know, the Blade Runner five disc box set is probably my favorite and probably the one that maybe people um, were the most excited about um, just because of how much. Uh, it delivered that had been previously never seen before. So that was a great one. And, you know, restoring the final cut to Ridley Scott's vision and then doing a three and a half hour documentary and then 47 minutes of deleted scenes. It was just like it was endless Blade Runner love that we were able to like put into a box. So that was great. And then I think the uh, Alien Anthology, uh, previously Alien Quadrilogy box set, uh, the Blu-ray set is vastly superior to the the DVD set. But I think that was was great just because we offered two different versions of each movie and then commentaries for each movie. And then just, again, just hours and hours and hours of, of really candid behind the scenes documentaries. There's a lot of other ones that I, I'm, I'm proud of and I like, but I mean, we'll be here all day. Right. <laughs> but I, think, I think those are the two that are probably the ones that will be on my gravestone. And Drew, why don't you
0: let our listeners know how you and Charles know each other?
1: I was lucky enough to, uh, during my time at Dave's Video, get to know a lot of people who work in the uh, the production end of home video. And so a mutual friend of ours, Paul Prishman, started working with Charlie, and that was sort of the personal introduction. My favorite Charlie memory, uh, there was a night where he was kind enough to host us at his uh, studio where he has his uh, screening facility set up uh, for us to show some friends uh, cigarette burns when we very when we finished the uh, their very first cut of it and it was a lovely lovely evening where we got to share something with our buddies so thank you again for that Charlie I also I am on a deleted lost long forgotten audio commentary that Charlie recorded for a movie that the studio then shot down and uh, it was a huge bummer because it was huge fun to do the fly too. It went really well and was a lot of fun, and I think we told too many stories.
2: It would have been a great inclusion. And I'm still, to this day, I'm not sure why it wasn't because it's, you know, at at minimum, it's just additional bonus content and it's additional (laughs) stuff to
0: listen to, you know. So let's start with uh, 1982's The Hunger."
2: It's funny because when I was at USC film school and I started interning to try to, you know, land a job somewhere after I graduated, the first person that I really connected with long term was Tony Scott. And I was Tony's personal script reader for a while before Ridley stole me from Tony. But I miss him dearly. And I think that's a really amazing first film. So when it came up, I was kind of surprised because it's such a cult movie that's kind of controlled by a major studio with Warner Brothers. So you hope they would do something. And we did. We did a little bit. But you can't expect them to, to really, you know, open up the pocketbook and go crazy and uh, and do like an epic documentary and everything else I would have normally tried to do. But we, we had like some very interesting conversations about what we could do because there was nothing like behind the scenes footage or anything we could do to really do a proper doc. There was hardly any even still photography for us to use at the time. So we were going to do sort of a real world thing on sort of like the goth underground and, and kind of like do that approach. But that didn't really track well with the studio. So we really just did a commentary with Tony and then uh, Susan Sarandon. And that was two different sessions. I did uh, re- recorded Tony in LA and Susan in New York. As far as commentaries go, that's one of my favorites in terms of the, the recording and the and the actual experience of it, because commentaries can be boring as hell. You just open up the, the racing form and just start reading the paper while people talk, you know, in this case, it was more conversational because it's an older film. So you had to kind of like bring back memories and, you know, Tony was always great, he was always a lot of fun. If you look at even like photos of Tony, you just see this twinkle in his eye. He's always got like this thing going on where he's definitely thinking on multiple levels at the same time and, and he's very playful, I think, in, in his creativity or he was. And that's kind of how he was in person, you know? I mean, every time I, I had to deal with him, it was always a bit of like, well, what curveball is Tony gonna throw me today? But conversationally and in person, I, I, I found him to be just kind of like the, uh, the crazy uncle I wish was always there. You always kind of felt like you wanted to please him.
1: As we've been working on the podcast, um, one of my research things that I've been doing is reading a lot of um, press from the time, a lot of contemporary magazines, fanzines, things like that. Like with Blade Runner, you had just mountains of material to go through. On some films, you have nothing to go through. So where do you start your research, man? Well, it depends on the movie because a movie like Blade Runner, which is my favorite film of all time, it's like
2: I've already got a pretty deep understanding of its production history.
0: It's still your favorite film?
2: Well, my relationship with Blade Runner has grown complicated in recent years, but I and, and other films that are less complicated are coming to the fore, but I feel like it's part of my DNA at this point just because I, I have been so immersed in that world for so long. In that case, I didn't have to do a ton of background research because I was already pretty familiar with all the major stories and the characters and, and kind of what went down, and having the luxury of working on that for multiple years. I mean, we kind of started the first conversations in the year 2000 and it didn't come out till 2007. And we were, we were up and down in terms of activity on it. It was a long time to have that thing just sort of percolating. There was a period of time there about a year and a half or two years where it was almost like every day we'd open a new box of film elements or tapes or art or photos or whatever had been, in storage or archived somewhere. And it was like Christmas every day because there were things I was discovering that I didn't even know about. I mean, even if you had read Paul Salmon's book, Future Nora, The Making of Blade Runner, which many consider to be the definitive Bible of the making of the movie, there was still stuff that wasn't even in that book that we're discovering in these boxes of, you know, lost footage and deleted scenes and things that we thought were one way and they were actually another way. That to me was the most intoxicating, I think, stretch of time I ever had. in yes,
0: this. you're almost <laughs> like, uh, I-, I can't imagine. Let me ask you this. You, aside from uh, Ridley Scott and perhaps Hampton Fancher, are maybe the world's leading Blade Runner expert. What version should somebody watch first?
2: uh, First of all, let me just say I would include Paul Salmon in that list as well. But look, if you want to do it properly, I think the version, you should watch them in chronological order of how they were released. So that you can see the evolution of of the film and how it was sort of like stillborn and then reborn and resurrected. I mean, there's kind of like this
1: strange... Phoenix-like journey the film took. Because there was the weird home video version was the first alternate version I remember with the extra violence. One of the things that I love about Blade Runner being that, that is so central to who you are, Charlie, is that I feel like for guys my age and your age who grew up with Blade Runner, who saw it when it came out, who were in love with it from day one, Blade Runner has always been a movie about ephemera and different versions And the alternate cuts, all of that extra stuff was part of what I was drawn to and loved about it. Your work on it has put all of that into one central place where I can finally just hand somebody and say, look, it took me 20 years to amass what you can in one afternoon. Now, sit down and devour if you want to. If I was showing somebody the film for the first time, though, if you're going to show them film, you got one shot at impressing them. And ultimately, Charlie, I think the work you guys did, yours is one of the rare cases where I would use the final cut. That's the movie to me. Whereas a lot of times I'm a purist for theatrical films, I think the theatrical Blade Runner was unfinished and a little broken. And I think the final cut is the movie to me. Well, I'm glad
2: you think that if you were to say you could only watch one version, I would say, yeah, it should be the final cut. I think of the five cuts we have in that box set, I think there's really only three that need to be studied. A final cut for sure. Uh, The work print, which I love quite a bit. It's like the punk rock version of the film.
0: It's our producer, Bobby's favorite. He loves the work print.
2: And then the kind of the in-between one is the international cut that Drew was referring to, having extra violence. The U.S. theatrical cut
1: and the director's cut are just kind of there for completest sake. Now, Charlie, you you were a guy who, before you made these, you were probably a very early adapter of home video, and you were, I'm sure, fascinated by alternate cuts of things. And in some of these cases, you're the guy who, from day one, you were on set and you were shooting stuff, and you got to do it from the beginning. In some cases, you might have been the third guy to ever do a home video release of something. There were a lot of releases of Alien and Aliens, Before you finally got to do what many people now consider the definitive collection, can you talk about when you're picking up the baton, how do you view your responsibility when a film is in your hands for the time you have it?
2: It was interesting because the whole reason I even got to do the first the quadrilogy and then the anthology box sets was Alien 3. That's the one I really, really wanted to do because, first of all, I'm a huge David Fincher fan. Secondly... We had all heard the stories about what a tough shoot it was. and
1: Well, the development alone. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. The
2: multiple <laughs> scripts, the multiple directors, different cuts of the movie, all this lost footage that there was that VHS work print that leaked out, you know, again, back in the 90s that a lot of us was, were circulating around. So I, I kind of felt like Alien 3 was the one that really needed the treatment because – there was just so much there. It was almost like a Blade Runner level of backstory that I thought we really could explore. But, of course, Alien 3 is not a sexy title. It was like a, a year or two of going back and forth because before the quadrilogy set, Fox wanted me to do— Do you remember the old five-star collection? Definitely. So they wanted a five-star of Alien. And I said, well, not to turn a job away, but I said, isn't there enough content already on the shelf that you can just like put this out as a 5 set? You don't need me to do anything. But they kept coming back to me and I kept saying, Well, how about Alien Three? And they'd say, Ha ha ha. And then that conversation went on for like probably two years till finally that I got the call again about Alien Five Star. And I said, How about Alien Three? And they said, How about you do all four? And you know, I I kind of dropped the phone. I was like, wow, be careful what you wish for. So um, that began this whole sort of process of okay, let's start from scratch as much as we can. I mean, we'll include everything we can that's already kind of archival. Let's try to do a coherent. For a movie story, a behind the scenes story that
0: fans always want you to include the old stuff, but. How often do you really go back and look at those you know, 12-minute EPKs, really?
1: You as a filmmaker make documentaries that, to me, and that's what I love about your work, Charlie, is that you are a storyteller and that you understand that part of what we love about these behind-the-scenes things, it's not just watching someone stand on a set. It's the story of how a particular decision was made or how our favorite line came into being. Well, I
2: approach every job, whether it's a new movie or an old one, uh, journalistically. What's the story? What did this writer... what did this director, what did this actor, what did they go through to get to the final product? I feel like if you go through the process, warts and all, and you show the the challenges and the drama and kind of the chaos sometimes of how movies are made, when you get to the end and they've delivered a film you now love and you cherish, it's more of a victory yeah. versus an EPK where it's just like, everyone's a genius. Everyone's great. There are no problems. Everything's fine. Go see the movie. I get that from a promotional standpoint. I get it. But when you're buying it on home video and you're now putting this on your shelf in your library and you, it's something you want to cherish for years and years and years
1: you gotta stop selling the movie I do think there's something great about realizing that they have to make mistakes and they have to make bad choices and they have to go down dead ends and they have to beat their head against a wall to sometimes get to that thing that you remember every day I, I think that's the, the theme of The Last Jedi <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Charles I gotta tell you as you probably know Alien is my very favorite film of all time. I am a staunch, firm believer in Alien, theatrical cut. Aliens, director's cut. Agree or disagree? I didn't know we were talking about religion. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it's it's funny because
2: – and by the way, just to backtrack a step, the reason I mentioned The Last Jedi is because – The director and the Jedi, that documentary, fantastic. Now, it might not be super candid in terms of problems, but man, the access, and the intimacy of that thing is so beautifully rendered. And that brings up sort of like the religious component I guess we're going to talk about. But the only film in the Alien series that I don't really count is Resurrection. I hate Resurrection with a passion. The reason I think Resurrection is so painful is because there are so many amazingly talented people who worked on it. Absolute geniuses work in that film, and it just blows my mind that that's what got delivered. But I would say Alien Three makes for a really solid ending to a, a great Ripley trilogy. If Alien is about birth and Aliens is about life, Alien Three has to be about death, and that's a perfect trilogy of films. And I think, frankly, I think Sigourney Weaver's performance in Alien Three it might be her best that she's ever done as Ripley. Oh, yeah. uh, for me, it's like it's not even a debate. Alien is the theatrical cut all the way. I mean, the director's cut. It's an interesting little side thing. I mean, the reason that that director's cut even came up was when we were doing the quadrilogy set, the goal was to take all the deleted scenes, everything we could possibly find from Alien and reincorporate it into the film to have like this long mega cut because we thought the fans would like to have that for the the context of everything. And we showed it to Ridley, and Ridley felt like it was way too long. And I was trying to explain to him, yeah, exactly. That's, That's that the point. To, it goes to show that your theatrical cut is the perfect cut. He felt like there was a good middle ground that, uh, to create a new version of the film that people still wouldn't like get up and walk out of. I don't consider that director's cut a true director's cut. And if you read the booklet that came in one of the box sets, it's, there's a very carefully worded intro mm-hmm. explaining why it's being sold as a director's cut, even though it's not his preferred cut. And then with Aliens, you know, again, that's if you're going to show the film to somebody for the first time, I think you should show the theatrical cut of Aliens. But the longer cut, the special edition cut, is a very worthwhile experience as well with a lot of great stuff in it. If you look at Aliens, there's really only one clunker of a deleted scene. And that's the one that was never included, which is the Burke cocoon scene, which we finally got on the on the anthology Blu-ray set, you know, in a way. and, And Ridley brings this up as well. It's like, you know, as a filmmaker, it's almost like you're writing a novel. When you read a novel, you can actually set the book down and get up and go to the bathroom for a bit and then come back. But with a movie, you don't really always have that luxury without getting taken out of the film. So these longer cuts that I think Jim Cameron you know, likes
1: and, and Ridley occasionally goes for uh, is sort of like the novelist within. I will say that you were involved in perhaps the most persuasive director's cut versus theatrical cut that I've ever seen, which is Kingdom of Heaven.
0: I literally felt like I was watching a different film.
1: Well, you are. You are. It's a. It's a film with characters. It's a film that actually makes sense. It's a film where the story tracks all the way through. Well, I mean, if I recall correctly,
2: 2005 was not the best year at the Oscars. I might be misremembering, but if Kingdom of Heaven had come out in the fall as the director's cut, I guarantee that would have been a no- a, certainly a best picture nominee without a doubt. But it came out in the in the summer in like you know popcorn time, and it was the cut down version, and it just didn't connect. And I think Eva Green would
1: have had a different career in this country,
2: for sure. Oh I mean, God. She, was, she was the one, unfortunately, that bore the brunt of the the, the cuts and the, the whole the whole subplot with her and her son was just, yeah, she's fantastic in that film.
0: Of your other '80s films we've covered, Drew and I both had a good time with Blue Thunder. I love Blue Thunder. I mean, in
2: fact, I was lucky enough to actually see Blue Thunder being filmed in downtown LA. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was on the news, like Channel Five would be crazy helicopter movie being shot again this weekend. They did it enough times and my mom actually drove us down to downtown L.A. There's no way you could make that movie again. It was, I mean, even being there in person to see it happen was, was terrifying, but thrilling, you know, like the roar of those helicopters flying over you. The big one was when Murphy parks Blue Thunder, it's after he's already kind of like lost control of, of his minigun or whatever was in front of the, the helicopter. And <laughs> he's kind of parked there in that alley waiting for Cochran to show up. And then he like unloads hitting the, the fire escapes behind him. I saw that part of it, which was incredible nice. to see. And then the other one is that, that really great epic shot where Blue Thunder flies toward Cameron and does that quick turnaround to go down the other street. Yep. I got to see those two bits. Was that your first time on a set? My first set, technically, though, my dad worked with Robert Altman. California split which i love my dad did just like did weird odd jobs for Altman he was like Altman's guy whatever that means Not you know but he would like go boy to Friday. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a ton of pot in the refrigerator in the production office and my dad being like the naive uh, Spaniard, having just come to America, thought it was like spoiled oh, some kind of vegetable. Like he thought, it, he thought it was like lettuce or something, and he tossed it out. And like everyone lost their shit over that. And Altman thought it was hilarious. So get my dad on. Well, in the case of Blue Thunder, though, it was it was interesting because this is true for a lot of '80s movies. A lot of '80s films are were not well archived in terms of their. Deleted scenes, all the trims, anything that's in a in a box that's not the actual feature or doesn't support the actual feature got tossed. Blue Thunder, there was a little bit left, fortunately, but just not like you would have nowadays or even, frankly, in the 70s, like with Aliens. Like, there was, you know, we had everything on Alien. We had tons of stuff on Alien. But in the 80s, it was like that period of time when studio executives started asking themselves, why are we paying for all this storage? Why are we paying for all this stuff that has to get archived? And that began this backward path of destroying 80s material they would have gotten to the 70s and even beyond but then dvd hit and then suddenly they realized oh we have to save this stuff and frankly going back to blade runner that was a close call because pallets and pallets and boxes and boxes like thousand boxes of film elements that had been marked for junk in 1988 and we didn't get to it until 2001 really the facility where the stuff was kept they were basically waiting for the final junkie in order and they never got it like someone just forgot to throw away blade Runner. That stuff was on death row between 1988 and 2001. I think nowadays people just take it for granted that everything will be backed up and saved. And again, before DVD, people didn't realize there was a need for it. Criterion did, you know, Criterion was one of the early pioneers in that yeah. regard. But there are there are examples of like the televised version of The Godfather saga, right, where they recut part 1 and 2 chronologically and they showed it as like a what was like a two-night special movie or whatever on television, like that required some post work that they would need those elements for. So, I mean, there were examples of reasons not to throw the stuff away, but I I think that you look at a film that maybe wasn't the most popular or successful. Why are we holding on to a thousand boxes of footage when we're not, we're never, ever going to revisit this film because it was a bomb, you know, and Blade Runner was in that category
1: for a long time. Is there anything out there that you would love to get your hands on where you know there's still some stuff. There's still things that exist in a perfect world. Like I'd love to see like a of bonsai that was exhaustive top to bottom with everything, every single thing you could get. I doubt any of that exists. And I'm curious if there's anything out there that, you know, I could do a killer, killer set for. This is a tough one because there's certain titles I, I don't
2: even want to mention because I would like to actually try to pursue them. And the instant okay. I mentioned it, it becomes oh. a thing. Yeah, and then there's other ones that have already been done, um, handsomely produced stuff that, man, I wish I could go back and do my version of it, you know, like, say, like the Star Wars movies, for instance, I mean, like, <laughs> the nine year old in me wants to go back and and do it my way. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very selfish <laughs> thing. But I know th- there's always more. That's the other thing. It's like, sometimes I've had meetings with studios, and they'll, they'll say, like, in the case of Alien, like, is there more? Because you've really mined it pretty hard. And they said, well, you know, we've definitely put the lion's share of great stuff on there. But there's always more stuff. I don't know if it exists, but I would love to do the alternate, the never before seen lost version of Enemy Mine. I would love to uh, somehow resurrect the lost footage from the John Hancock version of Jaws 2. And you know, the ones they do now are the films that were kind of like bombs or are considered turkeys when they first came out. And I was even in in this weird zone of like, I was going to pitch, you know, Ishtar, you know, just because, you know, it's it's, kind of like this weirdly strange, yet I find it amusing movie. You know, it has this reputation of being like the worst bomb of all time. And I would love to explore what
0: went on that set. Ishtar is not even the worst movie that came out in May of 1987.
1: I, I get hot about that. I think Ishtar is, if you talk to most working musicians who know Ishtar, they will tell you Ishtar is... Brilliant. There is something that he gets right about that beating your head against the wall, no matter how old you get, no matter how bad you are, that I think Ishtar celebrates beautifully. And the Paul Williams music in that film is next level funny. I think every song in that movie is hilarious.
0: What, What are your other 80s ones? Top Gun. What's your opinion of the film in general?
1: I think it's a um,
2: an essential '80s artifact, but it's not a movie that I I love particularly. And it, and the thing is, I was living in Spain when it came out, and I went back to L.A. that summer. And it was like two weeks after it opened, and uh, all my friends were raving about it. Everyone was wearing their like aviator glasses and their flight jackets and all that stuff, and it was ridiculous, like the Top Gun fever that had hit. And I
1: went to see it, and I was like, "It's all right." Yeah, I never I never got bit by the bug, and it was weird watching
0: it happen, man. What were you able to dig up for the Blu-ray, though?
1: Well, that one we actually found a a decent amount
2: of stuff. The only thing we didn't find were these deleted scenes, like there was a visit to Goose's grave. Spoilers. But we interviewed, you know, Tony and Bruckheimer and uh, a lot of the the cast and crew. Um, We didn't get Tom Cruise. We almost did. But we did get a previously unused interview with him that was really great to have. That kind of began a a series of DVDs I worked on that the military had an involvement in it where... Like between that and Black Hawk Down and a couple of Transformers movies I worked on and every time the military gets involved, you get a lot of support, but you definitely have to kind of, you know, take a different tone with it. On Black Hawk Down, just man, those guys went through hell and probably the most uh, harrowing experience I've ever had doing this stuff. Was recording the audio commentary with the four real guys that we got, who were the main, like basically the main characters in the movie, and they came in and did commentary, and they were basically saying, "Okay, this is accurate, this is not accurate, but it's close." But the scene when the, the two crash helicopters and their mob is pulling the bodies of the pilots into the street, for them to re envision that in their heads, having actually been there and watching them from like behind as they're watching that, like seeing one of their like knees start shaking from the memory of it, that's a really devastating but but powerful. And an important experience, I think, I've like, I've had.
0: All right. Well, you had one other one? One other
2: 80s? I guess. I mean, I worked a little bit on Legend. That one, that one I worked on, The Director's Cut, that was definitely kind of a dream project for me, because, again, it was the story of the missing version of the film that everyone knew about, but we just didn't have access to. And that took a while. Like, we almost didn't find The Director's Cut of that one. Now there's three versions out there. So you can get the U.S. cut with Tangerine Dream. You get the European cut that's a bit longer with the Goldsmith score. And then you get The Director's Cut, which is the longest. With the Goldsmith score. What was the Japanese laser disc back in the day? That was the European version because that predates our work on the director's cut. And I, and I have
1: that Japanese laser disc. I just haven't taken it out of the cool packaging that it's in. Because of Dave's video, we had the Japanese laser disc for rent. I, we could never make heads or tails of it. Like it was such a weird presentation of the print that they had. There's no backstory. There's no internet to run to. You can't just go look up what it was. There was really no reference for it back then. That's one of the things that I really love about your work, Charlie, is that ultimately what you are doing is putting into one place these things that, growing up, were arcane knowledge that had to be tracked down. And to me, the rise of home video was remarkable to watch, Getting to see the heyday of it and see the work that you guys were doing and, and really see the moment where you were welcomed into the process and filmmakers just kind of embraced it and said, all right, well, this is, we're going to document everything from now on. And I don't think there's any less appetite for what you do well. I just think that there is an urge to get to this next step where everything's digital and it feels artificial to me. I've been through real home video cycles, and this one doesn't feel like we're done or that we were done enjoying what we had. But, you know, I I think the thing is not so much the format or how they're selling it
2: or whatever. I, I honestly think people's attention spans have just completely disappeared The vast majority of the marketplace just isn't there for that anymore. I mean, they just, they will not sit down for that type of immersion into any particular film, especially it's a process that's been explored so many times. There's a commonality to filmmaking that every film pretty much goes through. It's just, that's why I always try to focus on the human stories, what makes it unique, what happened on this one, what went wrong, what went right. Not so much, here's pre-production, here's production, here's post. So I feel like people in general, I'm talking about like mainstream film goers, they, they don't care anymore. And I, and I think that there needs to be a new way forward where it's almost like, uh, I don't want to say like reality television, but it's more engaging in terms of who these people are and show them in an honest light where you get all access on set in a way that has never been done before. But which, by the way, I go back to the last Jedi documentary. I think that was a really interesting sense of, wow, you were really there with them and you were in close quarters with Ryan Johnson and the, and the actors with it was beautifully shot. You could have people getting interested again, you know, and you could maybe even turn into like a TV series. But I just don't, I think people are so focused on their phones now, they just don't have the bandwidth. Me personally, and I have two strikes against me. One is as like a regular consumer of this stuff, finding the time in the day to go through it all. But then worse is because I've spent 20 years doing this stuff. The last thing I want to do is come home and watch more of it. And, and it has to be really special. And occasionally there are. there's Every once in a while there's something really special that, you know, all the DVD producer friends, we start talking and like, oh, man, did you see that thing? It's really great. you got to check it out. And, and I, I will. And I, and I find all kinds of inspirational stuff out there. It's just rare and it takes a lot. It's like, you know, asking a friend to read your
1: script. It's it's really hard to do. <laughs> yeah, you know? or
0: especially if you're already a script reader. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So, Charlie, one of the things that we've done for the Patreons is – ask people to go deep into their bag of 80s titles. What's been startling so far is I've learned some titles. There have been films that I literally have never heard of until they came out in certain people's mouths, uh, which is exciting. But more than that, it's just seeing the range and realizing that it's still bouncing around inside of people. I feel good about the fact that people love the breadth of the 80s, that we haven't forgotten how deep a decade it is. I mean, it's my favorite decade
2: of My life. You know, I sat down to record this with you guys. I was trying to put down a list of titles and it was just, it just didn't end. It was kind of ridiculous. And and then I had to divide it between the films that we all recognize as being great and then the ones that either people don't know about or they just don't get the love, I think. I mean, the first film to me, and this is one of my favorite films of all time, and virtually no one talks about it or even, I mean, they look at me blankly whenever I bring it up, but it's from 1988. Kevin Reynolds' second film,
1: The Beast. It's about the the, the the Soviet tank crew that gets lost in Afghanistan. Yep. The Beast is one of those movies that I remember playing. One of the games that I found most interesting in the 80s, the release date shuffle. It was supposed to come out, then it was supposed to come out again, then it was kind of supposed to come out here. and the, It was one of those that got moved around a lot before it finally came out. It is a remarkably... Tense and small scale movie. Kevin Reynolds was kind of like a secret at that point. And it also felt like he couldn't quite catch a break as a filmmaker.
0: Always considered Kevin Reynolds an underrated director. And for some reason, I always had it stuck in my head that he was like Kevin Costner's best friend. Kevin Costner helped kept helping him get work. And then it turned out he was actually a good filmmaker.
2: Yeah, no, I think he's a really great filmmaker. I've worked with him twice and uh, he's really interesting. and He's very hands-on go-getter filmmaker around this time when The Beast came out in 1988 it was around the time that Don Steele took over Columbia. And I think The Beast and Baron Munchausen and maybe some other films kind of got dumped because it just wasn't part of her you know, slate. Yep. And Munchausen definitely got chased around the release schedule. I, I kind of disagree about the notion that it's a small film. I and mean, yes, it's small in terms of like the personal dynamics of it and the characters, but it is set against a pretty big canvas. Um, I mean, there's like some David Lean style like vistas in that film that I find mesmerizing. The Mark Isham score I think is completely like dreamy and ethereal and strange. And I, that film is a mesmerizing kind of fever dream of a film that I I think
0: is fantastic. Drew, if Charles comes up and says "Hunk," I quit the podcast forever. I, I understand. understand. I understand. Okay. I don't blame you. Two of our guests so far have mentioned a 1987 comedy called Hunk. Which we think might be a running prank. Yeah, you Remember that one, Charles? Yeah, it's on my list. I'm
2: crossing it off right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it's
0: really hoping yes, to get you yes. at it. Oh, well. What's your next underrated pick?
2: Um, here's what I love, and it's, it's a super 80s movie, but I love it to death, and that's To
1: Live and Die in L.A. I fucking love this movie so much. My favorite thing about it is not the car chase. My favorite thing about it is not how insanely bow-legged William Peterson is. It's my favorite thing about it is that it is mean it is mean from start to finish and it's there's so many things to love about it you can love the fact that the treasury department ordered william freaking to change some of the counterfeiting stuff because it was too close you can love william defoe's weird androgynous am i seeing what i think i'm seeing love scenes but when that film lands its final punch on the audience. I don't know that I've ever seen a filmmaker flip the finger quite as aggressively on his way out the door. Like It's crazy mean. I, I had a very interesting experience with that film because I went to a test screening
2: of To Live and Die in LA that was down in Culver City at, the, at what's now the Sony lot. Back then it was the MGM lot. We had the ending where Chance lives. And it was really weird because I felt the audience was really into the film. And when he got shot in the face... You could tell the audience like, holy shit, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> and then and then cut to uh, Chance and Vukovic in this little shack up in Alaska or wherever they are, just watching television, watching the coverage <laughs> of the thing on the news. And everyone's like, what? He just got shotgunned in the face and now he's fine? He's like kicking it in this little shack? So everyone's noted. like, all my friends who, when we filled out the cards at the end, were like, awesome movie, but that ending is like the worst thing ever. And I'm sure that Friedkin agreed. Like, he did it because the studio said you can't have your hero die. I love everything about that film. I love the Wang Chung score. It's, it's so great. Every actor in that film is phenomenal. I mean, John
0: Turturro is such a prick, but he's, he's hilarious. what yeah. Yeah. Uh, Charles would be great for if we could get the, all the elements and let him produce a DVD of The Keep.
1: I am fascinated by that story. We just covered it. And I, I told Scott when we did the podcast, I'm actually reading the book right now with Toshi at night because he's a history nerd and he's fascinated by the horror right now. Reading that and seeing the film again, it has got to be a radically different thing that was made originally because that film can't be anybody's version. That can't be anybody's preferred cut of that thing.
2: Well, I'm sure that's why Michael Mann has kind of like not allowed it to be released on uh, on DVD or now Blu ray. Uh, it's yeah. kind of a shame because I think that's a really fascinating film, another great Tangerine Dream score. And I learned some interesting trivia about it recently. Michael Carter, the actor who played Molasar, you know, the, the demon in the film, yep. he played Bib Fortuna in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> no, I did
1: not know that. that. Like those two 80s, like red-eyed characters. He played them both. One of the impulses that drives me, and I think this is true even when I did anything cool or whether it's my own work or whether it's this podcast, I, there is a element of curation that since childhood I've enjoyed, which is simply... When you have a film that you love or a film that maybe isn't perfect, but that you love for whatever reason, sharing it with somebody is so much a, a part of that experience. And I feel like a big chunk of what you've done is setting the context, setting a table for a film to look as good as it can look or be presented as well as it can be presented.
0: Here's a package for the fan. If you love the Alien franchise, this is worth your 75 bucks. I'm curious. In
1: childhood, were you that way? Because I used to drag people to the theater to see stuff with me. Like, oh, my God, I just saw this thing. I want to go see it again. You have to come back so that I can look at your face while you watch it.
2: Hmm. I don't know if I ever had that experience, but definitely I went many, many times to see the same movies just to, like, burn them into my brain because I just – I wanted to catch every detail and just study it and study it and study it. That evolved when I went to USC film school because at the study center at SC, they would have this huge laser disc collection. And that's when you go down. That's when I discovered Criterion was when I was at SC and you'd listen to commentaries and you'd suddenly get this whole other perspective on it that you didn't have before. So as a kid, I, I didn't really have that except, you know, I read like the Jaws log when it came out and the making of Star Wars TV special and things like that. Where I was fascinated by it. But to me, it was almost like those were like another version of toys, you know, like seeing TIE fighters blown up against blue screens. Th- that was like, oh, cool. I want to blow up TIE fighters. You know, it wasn't like, how do you tell a story? And that came later. But I was always, I was, I was an artist as a kid, so I would, be, I would be drawing, like little storybooks, and I would like try to imagine what the next Star Wars movie was going to be like, things like that. But I didn't focus intently on this whole making of side of things until Ridley kind of yanked me into it unintentionally. That's when I realized, well, look, as a fan and as a consumer of this stuff, I, I think I have a decent opinion on what's good and what I like, and it was very, it's very selfish. This is what I want, therefore I'm going to try to push to get the disc that I want
0: that's just trusting an artist. and several years ago at I believe it was South by or Fantastic Fest, I caught a feature film that you directed called Crave. How did Thanks. that come about? How did you graduate from a documentary to a writer director?
2: That was the goal since I was seven years old was I wanted to direct movies. So the fact that I, I took this really long twisted pretzel of a, of a path to get to it is just life. you know, it's just like I, I didn't get the break or the opportunity, or I didn't push hard enough, or I just didn't have the idea at the right time or whatever. But as I was getting more and more into the world of the DVD, I felt like, well, I might actually have a better opportunity now to try it again. I, I tried many times before *Crave* to get other, other movies going. And I came close a couple times, but *Crave* was the first time where everything, where it was small enough of a movie. And I don't want to say simple enough, but it was like something that actually I could make without having to really just you know, it's been a pain to get the second movie going. And I feel like I have to keep writing cheaper. Like each new idea I start developing either by myself or with a writing partner. It's like, okay, the last one would have cost 5 million. This one needs to cost a million. Okay. Now we're going into 500,000 territory. Just right. to get it, uh,
0: yeah. He's like, okay, two people in a field with a blanket. I can afford yeah. that. Were you happy with the way it came out and the release and everything? Well, the release, no. The way it came out, look, it was an
2: education, to be honest. I mean, I kept thinking to myself, man, I've got to pull the trigger and make a movie. It's it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be perfect. And and the thing is, there's so many people in in Hollywood that every party you go to, it's like, oh, this is the year I'm making my movie. And you've heard that for five or six years. And I feel like at least now I can go to my deathbed and say, OK, I made a movie. <laughs> you know, it's like at least that the seven-year-old Charlie is happy. What's the log line for Crave? Kind of a psychologically disturbed crime scene photographer who's so damaged by what he's seen on the job that he kind of starts to disappear in these sort of dark Travis Bickle meets Walter Mitty like fantasies and eventually the line between reality and fantasy gets blurred to the point where he breaks he breaks his brain but in the middle of all that he fa- he falls in love foolishly with a cute next door neighbor and which by the way was kind of i don't want to say it was probably more than loosely based on a relationship of my own back then that I was dealing with that that kind of like gives him stability. It's, it's kind of weird. You know, the second act is when things are supposed to get dark and challenging. And, and Crave is kind of the opposite. He finds stability in the second act. But that's when everything kind of goes wrong in the third and goes seriously. <laughs> not, not his way. So,
0: Crave, check that out. All right, let's wrap up with one or two more of your favorite underrated 80s films. G- give me one or two more.
2: Here's one that's like an obvious one. It's a big one. But it's one that doesn't get the love I think it deserves. And actually, some people actually hate it. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom.
1: Yay! We're going to have Eric Vespion to uh, mount a very passionate defense of the film, because uh, Eric is perhaps the biggest Temple of Doom fan I know.
0: And I, I've gotten this reputation as being a quote-unquote hater, and I am not. <laughs> I enjoy it very much. It's just that I also think large portions of it were directed with Spielberg's dick. I I think it's a little seamy. I think it's a little mean and ugly. And I get that they were going for a slightly different tone, but it still make puts a like kind of a bad taste in my mouth. I don't like seeing kids get smacked around, you know, I have
1: gone through a real journey with temple of doom. And I, I wrote about this for Eric in that I did not like it very much in 84. And I am a big fan of it now. I think it is ridiculous a little racist, It's completely insane in terms of structure, and I really love it. It is Spielberg working some things out in a way that we really hadn't seen him do in film before. There's an anger, and I think that's part of what's exciting about it is, I don't know that we'd ever seen that Spielberg before this movie. Well, I had the the best
2: first screen of it, which was, I went uh, opening night to the very first midnight show at the Chinese Theater. It was packed like a rock concert. Uh, Lucasfilm was there giving out indie t-shirts to people i mean it was it was crazy first of all the film is, is literally a roller coaster and that opening scene at club obi-wan i mean the editing the staging just the music i mean everything about it is like spielberg on a plus popcorn filmmaker level i mean he's just like on fire through the whole movie but particularly at that opening scene and um but it's also one of the first times i noticed editing that took the audience into consideration which would, it happens twice in the film the first is Indy's first appearance when he sits down in the frame or in the tux, and he says "Chokweja, or whatever. There's a pause. It's like he sits down and the sh- the shot holds on him for like a second or two longer than it really should. It's like Fonzie making an entrance in Happy Days. They are allowing for applause, you know. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing. Like they actually and it, and it was required because it, you know people were like Indy's back. So that was the first one. But the second one I found I thought was really interesting, which was that wide shot matte painting in the catacombs right after the bug chamber sequence because it was required, and I remembered it vividly, that first night screening, that bug chamber scene was so on the edge of your seat everyone was screaming and just going nuts during that scene that when they cut to the quiet wide shot of the, of the catacombs you could actually hear the audience gasping like they were catching their breath and that sounds like it's <laughs> kind of like people always say oh yeah people passed out and they fainted in theaters back in back in the day no you literally heard people gasping like oh god like they couldn't believe that scene was so powerful I, that's what i love about the film it, it gets your heart pumping it gets your heart racing craftsmanship in that film i mean the score is one of Williams' best oh, score yeah. Sem- yeah. dougie slocum oh, yeah.
0: no give us send us off with one more big uh, with one more and we're going to save the rest of your list because you'll definitely be back in a few okay. seasons
2: all right this is just uh, off the cuff uh
0: but i love this film the three o'clock high oh yeah awesome uh, anybody I, I, you're not the first person to have this on their list and if i was on somebody else's podcast and they said scott give us five underrated 80s films <laughs> Phil who's three o'clock high would be number one or two. Well, you know, it, it, it came at that time when,
2: you know, I, I think a lot of us uh, who wanted to be filmmakers or who, who still want to be filmmakers or whatever, when we were like in that sort of embryonic state of like, how do I become a filmmaker? And my case was, I'm gonna go to USC film school because that's where Lucas and Zemeckis and everything. Well, Phil Juano at the time, you know, he was kind of the first big, like, rock star breakout of USC Film School in quite some time. Like, he was the Spielberg protege because he'd been discovered off of his uh, his, uh, student film, uh, Last Chance Dance. And it's really weird because a few months before 3 O'Clock High came out, I was at the Taco Bell, which is no longer there across the street from Warner Brothers. And... This guy who I had seen on CNN as the next protege, as the heir apparent, was sitting there uh, in the Taco Bell, like with a notebook scribbling. And I said, Oh, it's that Phil Juano guy. You know, so I suddenly, I kind of locked in on Phil Juano in this really almost unhealthy fanboy kind of way early on. So I was very relieved when I saw Three O'Clock High and that his talent was, you know, he he lived up to the hype.
0: Beautiful stuff in Three O'Clock High. There's there's amazing
2: stuff. And just like the Scorsese After Hours vibe mixed with John Hughes. And if you look carefully, I mean, he was almost like a proto-Fincher in a way because he was one of these directors who was very into cinematography. In fact, Joanna worked with Jordan Cronoweth on uh, State of Grace. I was just going to mention his second film is also, in my opinion, underrated. And and also, and by the way, and in between that, *You 2 Rattle and Hum*. So it's kind of like he had a really photographic eye beyond the kind of quirky Spielbergian whatever, you know, mojo he had going on back then.
1: So. I'm the same way that you were, Charlie, in that whatever it was, whatever the press was that he got before he had even made his first film. So when 3 o'clock Kai came out, there was a, almost a sense I walked into the theater with my arms crossed, like, all right, let's see you. Let me find out when you got picked. Then I walked out like, all right, well, he got picked because he's pretty good. That's, that guy's pretty good. I like that. But there was. There was a lot of buzz about him. And, um, and I wonder if that pressure, even before you've made your first film kind of sets a tone that is, is uncomfortable in an, when you're just trying to figure your voice out as a filmmaker, like
2: they were doing stories on CNN about him, like before he made his first film,
0: right? Just imagine imagine that you're, you're, you're climbing up and you're like, I hope I team up with some good producers and some good writers. And I make a movie that people like, and I make some money, that's pressure enough. And then you're told you might be the next Spielberg. That's fucking scary.
2: OK, now here's a great here's a great other underrated 80s movie that ties directly into what we're talking about. And that's the big picture. The big picture is the Phil Juano story. I mean, it really is. So it's like if you see that film, you're getting like the, the docudrama on Phil Juano. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a funny movie, too. It's a really funny movie.
0: Oh, I like it very much.
1: That is one that I think most people probably only ever got a chance to see on video. Like, that's a big thing that happened for us. There were a lot of movies that you would really not get a chance to see theatrically. When video exploded, it was almost like producers gave up to some degree and went, well, it's fine. It's As long as we get onto those shelves, that is the thing that that is most important. So there was an explosion of product, but I feel like we, we lost that thing where we found everything in the theater. And there was certainly an era... Where every major discovery for me was a theatrical discovery, and that ended at a certain point. Really quick, though, on 3 O'Clock High, there's a really great
2: podcast you guys should listen to. Uh, my friend Jim Walker actually did the theme song for 3 O'Clock High, um, Something to Remember Me By. And he did like a tell-all 3 O'Clock High making of podcast. I think his podcast is called R- Record. The first episode he did was all about 3 O'Clock High,
0: and it's like nitty-gritty behind-the-scenes stuff on 3 O'Clock High. It's awesome. Record by Jim Walker. I will definitely download that. Thank you so much for everybody. Thank you to Charlie D. Lazarica for tuning in. He is a director, DVD producer, and most importantly, a passionate and learned film scholar. Thanks so much for listening. We will get you back next week with a regular episode of 80s All Over. (laughs)